It's a beautiful day in downtown Tokyo, and this is Speaking of Shakespeare, a series of conversations about all things Shakespearean, with a focus on the digital technologies and teaching and research, and also about developments in Shakespeare performance and education across the globe. I'm Thomas Dabbs, recording this introduction from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. The following conversation is with Eric Johnson, Director of Digital Access at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. Eric and I spoke on the evening of October 5th in the U.S. and the morning of October 6th, Tokyo time. We will be conversing from remote locations in the Washington, D.C. and Tokyo metropolitan areas. In the fall of 2018, Aoyama Gakuin University entered into a relationship with the Folger to display several editions from Aoyama Gakuin's special collections in open access formats on the Folger's new Miranda platform. This project has been funded by a generous grant from the Aoyama Vision Initiative. This series is also funded by a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science called Kakenhi. And this organization thankfully includes support for research in the humanities. Okay, so let's get on with it. Thank you. Hi, Eric. How are you? Good. How are you, Tom? Good to see you again. <laughs> uh, considering everything uh, this year, pretty doing pretty well. We're doing pretty well in Japan. I had some questions for you right off the bat. But uh, you've, you've already been introduced. I want to emphasize the fact that I'm working uh, as a professor of Shakespeare at Aoyama Gakuin University in Tokyo. And you contacted me in 2018. And I remember when I was in New Orleans at the Renaissance Society of America conference. And at that time, you were in the middle of or beginning, or I'm not sure exactly where, but in, involved with a global initiative uh, outreach from the Folger. And if you could explain a little bit about that, what the Folger's goals are, uh, particularly uh, digitally, for uh, global outreach. Uh, sure. So the Folger has a, a mandate uh, as part of its mission uh, to promote the knowledge of Shakespeare around the world. Uh, it has always seen itself as uh, primarily an American institution, of course, but um, as you well know, uh, the, the Folger hosts uh, researchers and uh, other visitors from around the world. And so the Folger has, has been attempting to um, have as many people as, as possible um, enjoy Shakespeare, under, understand Shakespeare, and uh, the digital resources which um, I am, uh, which I, I had, um, have of course a global reach by their by their very nature. Um, so it's been a priority for the Folger for uh, a decent amount of time now. Yeah, well, there's so much happening. You know, you're in Washington oh. D.C. and there's so much happening in that metropolitan area. There's so many universities, there are others, libraries, and of course, art galleries with world-class collections and so forth. So you get a lot of activity from the region, but also uh, from, you know, within the states and of course, uh, Canada, North America, scholars come in. And I think for some years now, scholars in Japan have uh, been going to the Folger to do research 
but not really in droves. And I'm, I'm really happy that we sort of uh, re-energized, I think, not just at my university, but around my university. Uh, I have, over the years now, I've, I've been in Japan long enough now to have cultivated very long relationships with my Japanese colleagues. And I hope we get a chance. We, we won't now because uh, of the pandemic. Uh, I was hoping, of course, this month, this is October 2020. I was hoping that you could come over and we could bring you over and have you meet everyone, not just at my university, but also, you know, uh, involved in Shakespeare studies around Japan, uh, in particular, several people who would be delighted to talk with you. But it didn't happen this year. Maybe I hope next year. I hope we can get something going next year. Hopefully so. Yeah, I'd, I'd be more than happy to do that. It, it, it really does underscore how Shakespeare is a global phenomenon. Uh, there were a few people when I mentioned that I was going to Japan for a conference and, and to, uh, to visit your university. Uh, they're, they're kind of surprised and, and wondered what, uh, what, what my job at the Folger Shakespeare Library had to do uh, with, with Japan. And then I, I explained that uh, Shakespeare has actually been uh, read and performed in Japan for quite a long time, uh, longer than any other place outside uh, of, of uh, any non-Western culture, I believe. Um, and that um, it's, it's uh, seen as a mark, understanding Shakespeare is seen as a mark of being cultured as it is in, in other places. And it also has some connections with one of the products that the Folger has, which my team supervises, which is the World Shakespeare Bibliography. And Japan has always been very prominently featured as a country where we collect bibliographic information about those about um, Shakespeare related materials, uh, certainly including uh, books and articles, uh, but including uh, m uh, manga uh, comic books and, and uh, other uh, popular uh, cultural items. Um, they're all recorded in, in World Shakespeare Bibliography as well. So, um, so yeah, there there are, are, are multiple connections that might not be as uh, visible to or, or obvious to uh, to, to the uh, untrained eye. Well, yeah, and and also the rare books. Now, of course, we are working on a, a 15th century. Uh, Bible. And of course, the, the Folger uh, focuses on Shakespeareana, but also on things that are early modern and has, an, uh, again, a world-class collection of religious text and other related, culturally related text. And so we are going to share that uh, particular book and maybe a couple of others if things keep going uh, on your new Miranda platform. And what I would like to get from you is a little bit of an update of how, of course, you guys were closed down, ha having nothing to do with the pandemic, you were closed for renovations, right? You, you could still work remotely or on site. So what's the status now? Are you able to move ahead with your digital uh, initiatives uh, remotely or on site? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what wanted I, um, give the, the folks who are watching this uh, an overview of the, the library itself in case they're, they're not familiar with it. Um, and then uh, it'll be a long way of answering your questions. I, I think yeah, then- Take as um, much time as you need, yes. Okay, sure thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we'll, 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 end up, we'll end up back there. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the, the, the Folger Shakespeare Library was founded by Henry and Emily Folger 
they were of, of some means, not fabulously wealthy, but, uh, but, uh, but of, of some means. And uh, Henry Folger was actually a, a, a confidant and, and uh, right-hand man of John D. Rockefeller. And so uh, the Folgers did not have children, were not able to have children. So they collected Shakespeare materials as their life's work. Uh, and during the decades that they collected, they amassed the greatest collection of Shakespeare books in the entire world, uh, including 82 first folios, which, of course, as you know, is the first collected editions of, of Shakespeare's works, and uh, without which we wouldn't have half of, of uh, the, the extant uh, Shakespeare plays. Uh, at least over uh, 200 single play quarto editions, um, which are, are kind of like paperback editions of, 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 um, of, of single plays. And all in all, we have over a quarter million books, 20,000 of them, 20,000 of them are rare books and tens of thousands of manuscripts and many other types of materials. Uh, the Folgers located in Washington, D.C., across from the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress on Capitol Hill. And we are more than just a library, although we certainly still are a, a library, very much a library. Uh, we're also a center for the arts with a professional theater and a lot of other public offerings. We have public exhibitions, a, a, a wide range of digital initiatives and publications, which are um, which are quite popular. Uh, we have uh, books which are used uh, in classrooms and by Shakespeare enthusiasts uh, and an academic journal. Uh, as you say, we are currently closed because we are undergoing a renovation of the historic main building and we are expected to reopen in 2022, although we do still reach millions of people through our, our digital offerings. So the reason we were closed, uh, coincidentally, was for uh, not because of the pandemic, um, but because of the renovations, we closed in January of this year. And then the pand pandemic, of course, emerged um, almost simultaneously with that. And the Fulcher wouldn't have been closed to the public anyway in uh, the middle of March. Um, it has had an effect on our public offerings because we had expected to have public events in other places around Washington. Mm -hmm. But since most places in, in Washington, most public venues are closed. Uh, we've not been able to uh, to, to do that. Yeah. Um, but yes, we are, are currently closed, but we are still uh, expecting that we'll uh, open our doors again in 2022 with uh, renewed exhibition spaces and uh, more things that we can offer to the public. So the uh, renovation, pro the progress then has been, well, the renovation has been progressing. Yeah, uh, we had groundbreaking uh, delayed um, for uh, some period of time. Uh, but yes, the, the groundbreaking has already happened. And uh, so we are officially um, in, in, the, the, in the, the active building phase. Oh, good. That's good to hear that uh, that, that wasn't um, halted or um, suspended for, for some reason. Now, are you able to work on site now? Or are you guys working on site at all? Or are you working remotely? So we have uh, the, the term of art, of course, is essential workers. Our essential workers have been working on site for a long time. The teams that do not need to be physically at the Folger are not at the Folger. Uh, my team, which heads up digital media and publications, um, there's no real reason for us to be on site yeah. at the moment. So we are not there. And so 
we had hoped, we collectively, the Folger had hoped, that we would be able to work on site during construction, although obviously there would be some periods where there would be disruptions. Uh, so, but now, but we were thinking we will just move people off site when they need to move off site. But now the thinking is more: uh, how, we will only bring in the people who actually need to be physically at the Folger. Um, yeah. And so, for the, for the like I say, for the for the teams like ours, where um, we've been able to work off site for uh, for a long time, we don't need to we don't need to go in there, which is which is probably for the best, um, at least during the, yeah. the renovations, because, and, and especially around the, the, the precautions that we have to take for, uh, for health reasons. Yes. Well, I, I kind of become a little bit obsessed sort of looking at websites and so forth. They are world worldometer website. I'm not sure how accurate you can be from country to country. Of course, people uh, have to, uh, you know, sometimes for instance, in Spain, and you know that I have an interest in visiting Spain and so forth. And, um, there'll be n no recorded cases of Corona as they would call it. And then two days later, that's, it just jumps up. So you know that it's been stacking up over two days or whatnot. But anyway, right. having looked at those, it seems that the Washington, D.C. area has, has been doing fairly well uh, in comparison with other locations, but particularly in the States. So uh, that's good news. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is good news. It, it's also difficult to tell because it, a lot of the, the statistics depend on who is getting tested, how many people are getting tested. But Washington tends to be an anomaly for many different reasons. The Washington DC region ends up being an anomaly and not, not uh, really comparable in a lot of different ways. Partly because, um, again, since you've spent some time around here and you understand how uh, the American system of government goes, uh, Washington is its own entity, neither states nor uh, nor anything else. It's a it is its own uh, district, and then we have D.C. and Maryland, um, and then underneath the, the the states of D.C. and Maryland, you've got all the different local jurisdictions. So they've all got public health authorities, and they all report statistics in a fairly uniform way. But they do have a, a lot of different um, you know methods and programs. So where I live in Fairfax County right outside of, of, of Washington, D.C. We have, we're in Virginia, we have uh, a, 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 you know, different programs than would be in uh, the district, than would be in Montgomery County, across the Potomac River in Maryland. And so, yeah, it's, um, it, the, 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 there's, uh, there are a lot of things in, um, that there are a lot, of, a lot of complicating factors when um, when looking at this kind of thing. Yeah, and there's a there's a range. There's a there's a large socioeconomic range in that area. The, the wider you draw the circle, and uh, many different types. So many different types of uh, I wouldn't want to say subcultures, but just different types of uh, people from different types of jobs and so forth. Um, well, that's interesting. It's interesting to me because I've been in Japan. And in Japan, there hasn't been a lot of testing. And I, I think what happens is, is the old, uh, the, the word in Japanese is uh, um, gambaru, the verb, uh, which would mean in English to, to fight, but it isn't. It's just, you know, struck, persevering. Doing, so I think that the last resort, you know, if someone gets the sniffles, if it isn't too severe, if they get a bit of a cough, the last thing they're going to do is go into the hospital because then they're tested. 
and <laughs> kept there. They, they have to, but they're required by law to stay there. So they, and that's probably not good public health policy. It keeps the numbers down. But right. on the other end, there haven't been many deaths for a population about half the size of the states uh, is very, it's very low. Now, and any death, of course, is tragic, but, uh, you know, uh, untimely, as we say in Shakespearean language, any untimely death is, is tragic, but they're very low. And this is a mask wearing culture. So it hasn't been sort of, become, it hasn't become a thing. You know, and it's it's something that I love. I, you know, I'm from the American South. You know, so again, it's sort of odd that I'm in Japan and I'm the connection in uh, Tokyo, but uh, I it's a love it's a love hate sort of thing that I have. Uh, when I was in England a few years ago, I saw all of the traffic cameras. You know, and I saw you uh, at, at some point. We talked, and you were complaining about the cat the cameras going outside of D.C. and how they're very arbitrary and extremely strict. And a, a year after that, I was driving in that area and I was frantically, my address is registered in the United States. I have a post office box. So <laughs> I just had this, you know, almost sleeplessness thinking of a ticket showing up there. And I returned, <laughs> what, six or eight months later, and the whole thing has expanded into, you know, my face on telephone poles, you know, this man is wanted. <laughs> and so I had a friend go around and check the box and so forth. And I, I noticed in England, you know, going into driving into London every 30 seconds, it seems that my uh, navigational system, the uh, GPS was beeping me about cameras. And I'm thinking, you know, there are places in the United States where some good old boys would take their shotguns out and just take care <laughs> of that camera because that's just not fair. That's not a an American thing. You know, you get to represent yourself in court, you know. Even if it's your honor, I was thinking about something, you know, I, I was, I had a fight with my wife and I was thinking about that. And I went a little bit over, you know, you get to defend yourself. You yeah. know? And uh, so there's that American resistance to, and, and it goes state to state too, a kind of uh, resistance to uh, central control right. uh, that you don't see as much sometimes in other countries uh, that in Japan, everyone is masked. Now, not everyone, about one out of 100 you might see, and it might be because the person dropped their mask and they're going to get one. And it, it has absolutely no, it's just considered, you know, public health policy, we wear a mask, just like we wear, we wear a shirt to work, you know. But that, and that predated uh, the, the, the pandemic, I believe, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it was something I never did. But I had colleagues every, every time we had faculty meetings, there'd be almost always at least one person with a mask and the dual purpose of, of uh, maybe not wanting to get sicker, but usually they feel maybe they have some sniffles in the morning. So they put on a mask so as not to, it's considered a polite thing to do. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, the, the country is very, and also I think a lot of Asia, the Pacific Rim in those countries is just, uh, people have been, uh, what's the word, inured or uh, they've acclimated to the notion of it, where it was very strange for not just Americans, for uh, friends of mine in the UK. Uh, and I had an Australian guy say something a little cross to me on the street. And I, I, I'm assuming he was Australian because I think I can d differentiate the accents now. But uh, he just thought, he, um, oh, mate, the word mate. Nice mass yeah. mate, you know, he said sort of sardonically early on, but I'm sure he's masking up now too. But yeah, no, I, I think uh, in, in, in the States, the only time that you would wear 
any kind of face covering would be if you were in a dust storm or else if you're going to rob a liquor store. (laughs) That's right. Well, I, years ago I worked construction. It was a summer job out in Wyoming. There was a lot of dust flying and people on my crew, I had a bandana at that time and I covered my face and people on my crew got sick. There was something going because we were digging out there and just Mm -hmm. the inhalation of dust and so forth. And I didn't get sick. And I, I never forgot that. I, uh, but, uh, and of course, it was sort of cool. You looked a little bit like a bandit. You're on a construction site. It's all a bunch of, you know, burly men. Uh, so, well, that, that's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to avoid uh, in these conversations anything that won't matter a year from now. And I'm hoping that most of what we're saying now won't matter. But then again, it is the time we're living through. It is, it's historical now. It will yeah. be remembered. Uh, are, are colleges back in, in the D.C. area and in, in secondary schools? or It depends. Again, it depends on the jurisdiction for the kindergarten through, uh, through high school school systems. So the, most of the universities have, as a matter of fact, I think all universities that I'm aware of, although there are probably fewer out there that, where this isn't the case, um, they're either all online or more commonly, um, there's a mix of in-person and online. Um, I've got two kids at two different universities in Virginia, and my daughter is all online except for one of her design classes, and my son is completely online. And so there are benefits to being there. Even if you're taking classes online, you can still use the library. There are other facilities that you can use. Um, but it is pretty isolating, and I can only imagine what it must be to go to a new school at whatever level and feel like you don't know that many people. And of course, a lot of the activities have been curtailed, so that's usually how you meet people, and you're supposed to, and or you meet people with that you're living with, but you're supposed to keep away from other people. I think it's just a, a really it's a really tough time. My younger daughter uh, is a first year in high school and luckily she is as peers that she knows and she's been able to make a few friends uh it helps that her older brother is the senior class president um oh, good. so um as i said uh, you you're, you're just sort of being carried along with christopher's uh, slipstream aren't you and, and making your social <laughs> connections and i thought you'd get angry but she said no that's exactly what i'm doing um <laughs> <laughs> but so she, so she's been okay but i can only imagine if if you move from a different part of the country and you're new there you know how how you how you manage to do it so they're going our, our high school kids um are going two days a week in person and then two days a week here in our home which i think makes a difference i think it, it's good for them to get out and be in a classroom even though they have to wear masks and they have to sit apart from the other students but uh, that 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 does seem to to make some kind of some kind of difference. Um, so what what is um, what is your university doing? We're all online, uh, completely, except for uh, special cases where you, in the sciences where you have laboratory work and so forth. But there is a push. We just got an email to uh, your today. Uh, my overnight we, uh, an email came in uh, stating policy for people who may want to give it give it a go. And the first thing to do is to talk with students and, and 
and polled students and see how comfortable they are. It's, it's a bit different because I would say 98, 90, no, I would say 100%. Nobody drives to school. This, it, it's the oddest thing for an American to, to, like me to, you, there's no parking lot out there. Everyone takes a train. And so that's more of a uh, concern than the actual classroom because the, uh, we had a faculty meeting recently that was face-to-face, -face, the first one this year. And so we were spaced out in, in a larger room and there was no you know, anxiety or concern about that. And no one has gotten sick. And I don't know anyone who's gotten sick in Japan. I know several people in the States. So, uh, but the anxiety comes with the, uh, with the idea, and this is kind of stronger in Japan, the idea of culpability being held responsible. And you see this with the, uh, uh, the, the, the president right now, you know, there's this surrounding drama of how public relations is being handled and so forth. I would say, the average person, me included, but in, in Japan, the average fear would be the, the PR management that would surround any kind of super spreader event or anything and the stigma of, attached to a university that said, oh, well, we've had this number of cases and so forth and worries that student, students won't want to come to the university in the next year. There's much more concerned about that than actual actually the sickness. But so we're, we're being... Uh, extra safe and sort of to move this into the digital world uh, I have not learned m more about things digital in such a short period of time as in this year and I'm no spring chicken so you know I have learned things incrementally over the years but I had no idea how to do any of this uh, audio visual stuff I had right. to learn uh, L LMS learning management system software. We're using Google classrooms, which is worked out very well, setting up forms, understanding how things, you know, uh, are, uh, how you migrate information from, uh, your database on your Google drive into a grade book and so forth. And there are lots of people all the way through from kindergarten, all the way through trying to do this. And I think that what I'm hoping, I'm trying to remain pos as positive as possible, that we're kind of seeing what w might turn into a bit of a digital renaissance in the long run, uh, with people becoming aware of the uses of digital technology. And that's what I hope, anyway. Yeah, well, I, I can tell you what we've seen from the Folgers perspective. So we have a an edition again as you know uh, a free edition of Shakespeare's works um, that are based on our Shakespeare books so it is the texts of the plays and poems with the the explanatory glosses that, that say what all the, the um, passages mean uh, taken out of them because that's what people pay for when they're paying for the books so the free version is just the texts and we debuted a new version of the, the website, again, just coincidentally in February, it had been in the works for a very long time, uh, which turned out to be very fortuitous um, because we were able to catch the uh, updraft of the, uh, as, as you say, the, 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 um, the surge in people using digital materials. At one point in April and May, 20% of our traffic were coming from, was coming from learning management systems. 
And previous to that, um, th that was maybe 5%, 7%. Wow. So um, even during our, our busy times. And 10% uh, of the traffic was coming from Google Classroom alone. So that all you know, we had, we had always known that people were using uh, shit folder the, the the folders texts as part of Shakespeare curriculum. Yes, thank you. Um, and so we so we were we were very pleased to to see that um, that there was more of an uptake. But it really had not been something that we had thought very deeply about in terms of that being a use case. We thought about the use case of a student reading Romeo and Juliet and wanting to look up a passage, but we hadn't really thought about a, and we, of course we had thought about classroom teachers assigning uh, Romeo and Juliet and, and, and things like that, but we hadn't really thought about classroom teachers coming up with lesson plans that specifically were linking to our texts and doing something meaningful with them, whatever it might be. Um, again, we were aware that we were aware of the usage and we just, we had not really thought to differentiate it. Um, and, and also to think in terms of all online learning, we had always thought in terms of when the student was accessing a text of ours, it was outside of classroom use, or they were looking it up on their phone while they were reading, you know, had the book in their hand in the classroom. Um, so yeah, it's it's really forced us to to think more about how people are using these materials. Give you one other, I think, fascinating example. We did a, a little test that we're going to expand, where we recorded six of the essays that are about Macbeth on the Folger Shakespeare site, so Shakespeare.folger.edu, and because we had released excerpts of the audio recordings, the, the full cast audio recordings of seven of the plays, uh, and th they became very popular yes. in, in classrooms and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, we can only put them all up for a limited amount of time because of the coronavirus, um, because of our arrangement with our publisher, but they were, they were live for about two and a half months in, in their entirety. Uh, so we decided, okay, well, we can, we can record some of these essays about Macbeth and release them on the Folger Shakespeare site, which we did. And They've been reasonably popular. They, they have, have um, you know, we were, we were, we've been tracking them and, and, and they're, uh, you know, being used by the hundreds, which you know, on, on a very popular site is, is a small amount of traffic, but it's growing. And we didn't, we didn't really expect it to be all that popular right out of the gate. However, there is one audio file, uh, the introduction to Macbeth, which had gotten 2,500 uh, uh, listens or, or, or you know, accesses in about two weeks. And mm. that was uh, considerably more than any other recording had, had gotten yet. So we looked at the origins of where the users were coming from in Google Analytics, which tracks the, the um, which tracks all the, the, the metrics about uh, the site usage. And we found that a school system in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, had assigned, must have assigned students to listen to the introduction to Macbeth. Even though they could read the essay right there on the website, they still, uh, the, the, there was still a link uh, directly to the audio recording. And so we were A, very pleased with this, that someone thought this was, uh, this was uh, worth 
letting uh, apparently hundreds of students listen to, but it also forces us again to think about how our, our materials are being used because they're accessing the recordings without going to the web page. They were just using the learning management system link to play the, the audio. So people would click on the link and just play the audio. It wouldn't be nicely surrounded by a Folger web page or, or anything like that. Um, but the recording says from the Folger Shakespeare Library and says where they can get and find the text. So we're, we're happy that they that they um, that people are using these these uh, materials. Um, but it is going to require deeper thought on our behalf mm. as to how they are how they're being used in the real world now, which is uh, significantly different than it was last year. Well, it makes perfect sense. And I, I have two comments about that. I remember being in college and even graduate school, we did not have the video, uh, access to videos. I think that back then, this is another century, of course, we had a, a lot of audio though. And we're talking turntables with styluses and yeah. that sort of thing. And I remember my high school uh, teacher playing King Lear on a, uh, you know, as a record, as a vinyl as part of our class and hearing with the text made it much more vivid, even without visuals. And I remember another case in graduate school where I had to cover all of the history plays and I kept falling asleep trying to read them because it just, and they run together at one point. And, and I went down to the basement of that library and that university and they had those audio recordings and I pulled the book out and listened to each history play. And that and it made all the difference in the world. And, I, and yeah. it also committed it to memory. So it almost, it almost was better than seeing an audio, uh, yes, an audio, uh, a video production of a, of a play because you see that you get lost in the characters and their acting, which is wonderful. But if you're in an academic setting, that audio with the text is, um, there's, a, there's a word for it in the uh, educational, multi-layered learning or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one thing. Another thing is that people who are outside of uh, teaching are, are not thinking, well, suddenly we were faced with, okay, go get your text, but I'm looking down at my text and reading and they're seeing me on, or I can put up a share screen and I can annotate with the Zoom, in my case, the Zoom function, but there are other uh, LMSs, but I can highlight, I can put in comments and little text box and while recording, they can go back and see where those things are. So uh, I think that's the reason that you've seen an uptick in the Folger uh, usage. And that's, that's fabulous. So uh, I do want to, before we move on, we're going we're gonna to move on a little bit to your life. But uh, about Miranda, uh, if you could and explain, you or have a better grip on the, what makes Miranda uh, better. And I will say this, that we, we were looking for money in order to digitize our texts so we could put them on uh, your platform because our university is a big comprehensive university, but we just don't have the funding and the priorities to set up something that sophisticated. And so part of this uh, is trying to show people how smaller institutions with smaller special collections can share with uh, you know world class elite institutions and attach themselves and have their uh, it, it's a win win situation for everyone. We get our text exposed and you get uh, uh, larger uh, collections and so forth. But uh, why is Miranda better than say the visual platforms they had twenty years ago? Sure. 
Yeah, so um, I, I think I would hasten to say that what we built in Miranda is better for the Folger. It might not be best for uh, every institution. And the path that we have gone on is not unique, but it is um, not necessarily the, the usual path. So the usual path would be to uh, get off-the-shelf software and adapt it to the Folger's needs. There are a couple challenges with that. The first is that the Folger is a, as I was describing earlier, is a multifaceted institution and we're not just one thing. We are not just um, a library, we're not just a theater, we're not just uh, a, a museum. We, we combine elements of, of all these different cultural institutions. So coming up with a, a software package that could cover all of those usage usages um, would have required a lot of customization. So we figured, why don't we just take components that are already out there in the world, weld them together into one platform, and then, and here's the second challenge, adapt the data model ourselves to accommodate our collection. Because that is the, that is the, that, that is the challenge that most special collections libraries have. So again, as you know, um, I, 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 I hate to, I, I, I hate telling you, I feel like I'm mansplaining to you if I, if I, uh, if I tell you what a special collections library is, but um, I, I feel like for the. Oh, please do. Please do. Because <laughs> there are things I, I don't know everything and we'll, uh, we, I hope we'll have plenty of listeners who. I, will, I, I, I hope you know this is for the sake of the listeners, not because I think you are, you, you don't know what, uh, what I mean. Uh, so a, a typical university library uh, has a wealth of options available to it for library software. Um, a special collections library, by definition, is focused on its own uh, unique collection. So in, in the Folgers case, we focus on rare books from mainly from, from Western Europe, from the 16th to the 18th century, and also uh, Shakespeare materials from his time to the present day. So that's that's a pretty narrow focus by, you know, if it was if we were a university library, we would not have the breadth of materials that we have in those areas. Um, so it's a specialized areas. And so we need to classify our materials much more deeply than a university library would. So even a well-stocked uh, university library might have 300 books on Macbeth, for example. Um, but the Folger has literally thousands of items that are related to Macbeth. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of them, when you were looking at the metadata, the, 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 the descriptive data uh, about the objects, a lot of them look pretty much the same. And so we have to figure out a data model that takes into account and can differentiate between those, those things so people can, can find the material and make some use of it. That would happen whether or not we were picking off-the-shelf software or we were building it ourselves. Um, also, the, the, the third thing that we were trying to accomplish with Miranda um, is to bring in all of our digital materials into one platform. Um, so as far as its holdings, Miranda has the hundreds of thousands of records that we have of our physical collection and then brings together our images, video, audio files, data sets, and other things, other digital media, 
Um, and it allows us to collect media from other sources. So, so for example, the Biblia Latina that you mentioned um, from AGU. Um, and so we can add it as if it is a member, as if it is part of our collection and people could go to Miranda and, and access it um, as, as they would any other types of, of materials. Um, it does get to a tricky question because we do want to indicate the, the origin of the material as we always would, uh, but not misrepresent that we have, happen to have this copy of this book. It, it seems to be seems to be working well for us. Miranda is not just a repository that we put things into. It is also a way of distributing that, that media. So we have media players that we can embed into, say, a blog entry or a website. And so you're able to zoom in to an, a particular image and zoom out of it. Uh, then you can click a link and it will go over to, uh, to, to Miranda and you can see the, the full item. Um, but you don't have to automatically go to Miranda. You can incorporate that material into other web pages. And it doesn't even need to be a Folger web page. You can do that through, uh, through a, a WordPress blog um, or, or whatever site you have. Yeah. Well, I've seen the, the, the metadata is very well displayed. Uh, the parts of the metadata that are important to uh, identifying the source of the book. I think what really attracted my me and also my colleagues, and particularly Jap Japanese colleagues, because there's an old joke among me and a couple of my colleagues during a meeting, we were going over something again and again and again, a faculty meeting, and it went for a couple of hours longer than a already long meeting. And my now retired colleague, who is a sort of distinguished scholar in Japan, he wrote me a little note in uh, English and passed it to me. And he said, in Japan, detail is God. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, we were talking about in detail about something that uh, was just driving everyone crazy, but it had to be worked out. But there's a love of that and the ability for these high resolution displays through Miranda, and of course, other platforms. But uh, I think that is the big difference from before for, for the just average person off the street. You can zoom in and, you know, of course, people come to the Folger who are experts in the history of printing and they need that level of detail to see uh, how an E. Uh, I was invited by uh, some faculty at Keio University to use a 19th century printer where we uh, blotted it out with ink, and so we're we're a few centuries in advance, but it's still the same thing. It's a wooden print a press, and so we blotted the ink and we put the paper on, and we had set from their Gutenberg Bible a, a type set uh, uh, that would imitate that, and made ten uh, reproductions of that one page, and then the digital guys came in and zoomed in and showed the difference between each individual sheet and and when you get very very close you see that and uh nagasaki sensei kiyonori who's uh my friend and colleague he does buddhist studies and they're trying to do search capabilities in ancient manuscripts that are handwritten so anything any difference in a way a uh, chinese character is made has to be somehow put into the uh, the process of the, the, the mind of the search en engine. So that uh, is something extremely interesting, uh, the, uh, the Miranda platform and these new high-definition 
capabilities are very important. Um, well, uh, well, that's that's just fabulous, and I'm so happy to hear that you guys have uh, continued your work there. I'm going to move on to your personal life, and you're you're free to talk about as much about it or as you want. And sure. you can make up, you can even make up stories and we can try to figure out whether or not you're, no, I'm joking, but uh, you are, uh, everyone that I've interviewed, I interviewed Sarah Olive last week from the okay. University of New York. And of course, she has an interesting biography, having been born in the UK, educated in, uh, partially in Australia and right. then uh, going back to the UK. And in your case, I don't think you and I uh, judging from what our backgrounds are, there's some overlap probably in our backgrounds, the kind of families we came from. Uh, I think I was expected to be an insurance salesman. And I was a good, you know, small town insurance salesman. I don't know what was projected for you when you were, say, 10 or 11 or 12 years old. Where was the turn? Where was the turn to Shakespeare? So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think probably when I was younger, I think my, my parents just wanted me to survive to, to, to be 18 at least. Um, but uh, I, I came to, uh, to, to Shakespeare the way most students did with, with Shakespeare, and that was through school. I was in uh, acting classes in junior high school, and, and um, we were asked to memorize Mark Antony's speech, famous speech, uh, the funeral oration. And, um, you know, I think that was the first time that I had really thought about Shakespeare um, as a living thing. I certainly knew who Shakespeare was, and we had um, been forced to read Shakespeare like other students, but every student in the class needed to deliver the speech and needed to interpret it. So and we had to memorize it. So it, there was something about getting inside those lines that really fired my imagination and uh, kind of kindled in me a, a, a love of Shakespeare that grew over the years. I actually came to act on the Folger stage as a teenager uh, because mm. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., not too far away from where I live right now. And there was and is a Folger High School Festival where high schools from around the region would come and perform uh, either condensed, very, very condensed versions of Shakespeare plays, or would um, you know, perform segments of, of Shakespeare, remix Shakespeare, or, or whatever else. Um, and so I was on stage with my theater class, and we performed uh, some segments from Romeo and Juliet. Um, and uh, so throughout schooling, I kept up with Shakespeare. I watched Shakespeare movies. Um, and I got my master's degree in English from George Mason University in, in Virginia. And I was working for out of college, my second job out of college. Um, I was both going to uh, get my, uh, I was in my MA program. And I was also working for a, a newspaper that belonged to a, a larger news company. And I was running their websites, the company's websites. And since I had minored in theater and uh, when I was an undergraduate, I asked the arts editor of the paper if I could review play productions. 
And she said, well, we can't pay you any extra. I said, but I'll get in for free, right? And she said, yes. And so I decided, okay, well, that's a, that's a fair trade. So for whatever reason, the editor kept assigning me to local Shakespeare productions. And a lot of folks outside of DC area don't know this, but there is the Shakespeare Theater and the Folger Theater, and they both perform a lot of Shakespeare. So, and, and other uh other companies in the DC area perform Shakespeare with some regularity. Uh, so there, there was, and is a, a lot of Shakespeare uh, around for, for me to review. Um, and I reviewed plays at the Folger among other places uh, for, for the paper. Um, and so this is one of the, the, the little turning points in life that you don't really realize is going to be a turning point. Um, as I was writing my reviews, I wanted to get accurate quotations from the plays and I had a complete works of, of Shakespeare was the, the GB, GB Hardison um, or Harrison yeah. uh, edition that was used in, in colleges for, for decades. And, uh, but if I didn't know exactly where it was in the play, I would go to a Shakespeare website and try to find the passage. And I, mm-hmm learned that I did not particularly like the Shakespeare websites that were out there. And here I was as, as a career, uh, building building websites, and mm-hmm. I thought, you know what? I bet I could do better. Um, but I, I, I actually started at one point to to build a a, a Shakespeare text site, uh, but then I, I laid it aside because I realized it was going to be a, a decent amount of work. Yeah. Um, but I always thought, you know, somebody could somebody could do this better. Um, so then another interesting thread of, of my life uh, came into um, came, uh, comes into the story I guess uh, so starting when I was 18 I was in the the Marine Corps Reserve and I, I served in the Marine Reserve uh, for 13 years so I was part-time in the Marines uh, throughout college and then while I was pursuing my civilian career that I was just describing and was called up for active duty uh, for the Iraq war in early 2003 um, at that point, I still had not finished my master's in English when I was activated, and I still needed a thesis project. So I'd finished all my requirements, but I needed to have either a writing or editing thesis project. And after our, uh, after several months, um, our Marine unit was redeployed from Iraq to Kuwait, and we were there for an extended period of time not doing a whole lot, mm-hmm. just sitting in tents in the middle of the, the summer. And uh, so I, you know, there's only so many movies that you can watch on laptops. <laughs> uh, so I decided I really needed to do something productive. So as it happened, I had a laptop that I uh, carried throughout uh, throughout the Iraq. It was my personal laptop. Uh, actually, it was, it was for my, my job at the time. And um, I, was, I had access to a shaky connection to the internet. And mm-hmm. so I downloaded the software and several Shakespeare texts. And I decided I'll just start on a Shakespeare site. And hopefully when I go back, George Mason will accept this site as an editing, as an editing project that I can use to finish my MA. Um, and by the time I left Kuwait to come home, the basic site that became open source Shakespeare was finished. Um, and I continued to work on it and uh, convinced the English department at George Mason that this should be my thesis project. Um, and I brought in all the plays eventually. I, first, I thought it was just going to be 
I'll take five plays and I'll develop something. But it it really caught my imagination. I did far more than I really needed to do. Um, and uh, and also I, I wrote a companion paper, which I was told by my advisors uh, should be about 15 to 20 pages. And mm -hmm. then they kept giving me suggestions and ended up with the appendices being about 83 pages or so. Um, you know how those <laughs> things go. Um, and also, um, to bring in the one of the uh, the last remaining threads, I in 2004, I thought, okay, well, Boulder Shakespeare Library is right there. I wonder what they would say about 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 my site. So I emailed them, told me about my told them about the site, which had been out for a few months. Uh, I said, do you have any advice? I'd love to to drop by and, and talk to you all. And I, I talked to. Uh, Jim Kuhn, who at the time was in charge of the computer systems at uh, at the Folger, the library computer systems, and uh, Georgia Ziegler, who was uh, the head of uh, reference and who has helped thousands of Shakespeareans and, and early modernists over the years find the materials and in, in the depths of the Folger that they that they uh, that, that they needed to to access, um, and they gave me some fantastic advice. Probably the best advice was. They said, uh, build a concordance because there used to be a Shakespeare concordance with every word that Shakespeare ever wrote, or at least in this edition. Um, but it belonged to a professor who had passed away, and the university, in their wisdom, pulled the website uh, that, the, that the professor had created because it was on his personal website and he, had, he was dead. So uh, naturally, you would shut down a resource that lots of people use. Um, and I said, well, you know, are you sure? Do people even use concordances anymore? And they said, if you build a concordance, lots of people will come to your website. And I said, well, okay, that, that's fine. Uh, so at this point, I was working just in the evenings um, as, as I could. And so after about a week of, of work in the evenings, a little bit of a weekend, the concordance was done. And I released it uh, and, and told people on the, the Shakespeare uh, listserv uh, that's been around for a zillion years um, announced it and that was really the first time that open source Shakespeare what became um, known to the Shakespeare community um, and it slowly built up its its reputation over the years I was uh, and it's, it's gotten quite popular there's about two million people a year who, who use OSS Wow um, so yeah wow. It's, it is it is it is very gratifying because I I first started attending the, the Shakespeare Association of America conferences in 2008. And um, as I would talk to people, I'd tell them about my, my interesting little sites. Um, and uh, some people had said, well, you know, actually I've, I've already seen it, which was, which was very nice. Um, but there was some point uh, after a few years where I would start to tell people about the site. And uh, sometimes it would get a little bit miffed that, I would imply that they hadn't heard of the site, <laughs> and it had just become part of, as far as they were concerned, the infrastructure of the the of of, of Shakespeare world. Um, not not the only place where you could get the text, certainly, but uh, a place where you could do some um, some some great searching and and like I say, the concordance, um, and then features like being able to click on a character's name and seeing all the characters' lines. Um, those are all things that. Uh, you know, as far as I as far as I knew at the time, uh, were they were were not available to uh, to to the rest of the world. And uh, I guess the last thing I would say about it, I, I really wanted it to be free because I, I figured that um, the the texts themselves were free. 
Um, and so I, I wanted to have to make access available to the the, the widest possible um, the widest possible number. Um, and that's one of the things that I've enjoyed doing at the Mulder is that even though of course we have products that we have to, to charge for, um, we are bringing Shakespeare. Uh, to a vast audience, and as much as we're possible, lowering the costs or making it freely, making them freely available. Yeah, well, this was a story. Yeah, I ran across open source Shakespeare before I knew you, and I uh, received a grant. I think it was 2014, and I uh, decided to take a trip to the Folger and meet you. And I said, "Well, this guy, you know, the guy who did open source Shakespeare, and he's at the Folger. He's probably going to tell me, listen, look." <laughs> I don't have much time for you. And you were, of course, very, very open and invited me in and we talked in your office and so forth. But I was, I was like, wow, I'm meeting, you know, I felt like I was, uh, what is it, the old Wayne's World movie, and I'm not worthy, you know, I was getting a backstage pass to open source because I used it and so many of my students had used it uh, for graduate students in particular, had uh, used it. It was so helpful to um, because, you know, the, as we know, you, you have a, you know, a universe of textual variants. But if you're trying to write a paper, let's say you, you find a key word in there. I've seen a paper recently where they were looking at the word rank, which means quite a lot of things. Uh, anything from, you know, smelling badly to being of high rank and how it's used in Shakespeare. And you can start with open source Shakespeare and then you can work your way out to variants and say uh, the three major early versions of Hamlet, but it is a fabulous place to see if you're on the right track, if you're doing really deep research. And also it's just fun to kind of play with to see how often Shakespeare, uh, how, how often a word is used and the way in which it is used. It's just, I've kind of gotten those, you know how you go on these little YouTube journeys, sometimes little rabbit holes. And that's happened to me on open source where I, I realized, you know, a half an hour, 45 minutes have gone by and I've just been kind of uh, doing that. Um, yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that, that's great. To, it's, it's always great to hear people say that. Um, and and I, I do the same thing too. I mean, I'm, I'm a Shakespeare enthusiast myself, um, but yeah, there's, there's a number of times when I, I'll, I'll look and, and see, uh, where Shakespeare used particular words, um, or I'll try to look up a quotation uh, that's that's appropriate for a particular, uh, you know, to head of a paper or something like that, or, or to, to to make a point. Um, but I also think it's it's interesting to see where it's both interesting to see words that you wouldn't think Shakespeare would have used, but also words that 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 there are a number of words that Shakespeare didn't use at all but you would have thought that he had oh, and so the, the 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 silences can see a lot too um they and and uh or or, or even some of the, some really unexpected things like uh shakespeare actually used the word unfriended twice in unfriendly the, uh, unfriended oh unfriended so, uh, unfriended no, oh not, not there's a whole no, i could see a whole critical article there that's yeah yeah so I so not in not as he did not use it as a verb, yeah. Uh, he used it as an adjective. So someone without friends, um, but I still think it's a, I think it's it's fascinating that uh, even that as friending has has become a, a common verb today, yeah. Uh, mostly because of, of Facebook, I guess. Um, but it, it it is funny that um, 
that that uh, to, to see words like that cropping up in in, uh, in in Shakespeare as well. Well, and you can expand from there too. You can find out what other words people were using beyond Shakespeare, and it gives you a couple. Well, buzz is one that I found. I always the buzz I always associate with the internet. What's buzzing, you know, the sites and so forth from the early Yahoo days on on out. But buzz was uh, frequently used as uh, a word for gossip and for yeah. what's on what's on the buzz uh, because of the sounds within uh, chambers of put where people would it sound it would sound like a murmur or a buzz, particularly St. Paul's Cathedral in central yeah. London. That word is used. Um, well, I, I do want to emphasize, too, that this is this is a. Uh, I, and, you know, my I have a patriotic bent that we have a, uh, someone deployed as a U.S. Marine. And of course, the old story is 95 percent just complete boredom and then 5 percent terror. Right. Uh, but, you know, taking that that extra time in deployment and moving forward uh, Shakespeare studies. And of course, there are many there are many stories like that. Well, I'll just bring up one. After the Fukushima disaster in Japan in 2011, uh, there was a lot of not knowing, and there were some Marines deployed in uh, off the coast of Japan on a ship. And I, I don't know the details. I can I can send you a copy of the book that uh, that this is recorded in. But uh, these people needed food you know, very early on, this was, and you didn't know what the extent of the fallout was. So these guys went into harm's way. They, they had no idea. They could have been going into a very hot zone and helped with uh, a lot uh, with cleanup, with getting food out there, with making sure that people were in safe places and uh, getting clean water in there. And that's, that's another thing that the U.S. Marine Corps did. So I'm sort of giving a plug there for our troops because sometimes the uh you know we we only and maybe hollywood is responsible too a little bit you know you only see some of the things that are 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 not so positive uh, yeah no, i'd love to i'd love to hear more about that um yeah. know, there's so many uh there, there's so many uh, marine assets in, in the region especially in okinawa where uh, the third marine division is located um but uh, but no that's that's that, that is that is great to hear. Well, yeah, the the stories where someone behaves badly are more newsworthy than uh, the many many stories of what happens, uh, and that's the U.S. Navy too internationally right. where um, certain aid efforts are done. Uh, so I, I wanted to bring that up. Uh, I'm feeling um, uh, uh, probably uh, a little bit. What the Japanese word is not skashi is uh, homesickness, and I haven't. I don't typically feel that way. But I'm not in a position now unless I have a very good excuse to be able to return to the States and then return back to Japan and be perfectly assured that I can resume my work duties and so forth. I could be held up, uh, no telling where, really. And uh, that's that's one of the sad things. Um, well, uh, uh, that's great. And everyone in your family, it sounds like, well, your kids aren't in secondary school, at least. You're not having to do homeschooling. And uh, no, well, they, they are. Um, so the, the younger two are, are doing, like I say, school halftime at home. They're um, high schoolers. They're, are yeah. they high? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're kind of independent. Yeah. The, although the, um, so half the class is at home, half the class is in, so, so if there's, if there's a classroom of 20, 10 of them 
say will be at home that day and then 10 of them will be in the classroom. Um, so half of the student body is doing online learning and then half of the student body is, uh, is present at the school. Um, but no, they actually today, both of them were, were home and they were just in their rooms. I was uh, sitting at my desk and being productive and I heard them go to lunch <laughs> in the kitchen and <laughs> they went right back to their, uh, right back there. But, but no, there, there's actually, since the, the instruct, the, 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 the teacher is instructing uh, like a normal school day, um, they're just there on video. Uh, the, the students are just there, including my kids are there on video. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, um, it's a little bit depersonalized, but it's not, luckily my, my wife and I don't need to do too much intervention with our kids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about people with five-year-olds or seven-year-olds and so forth. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it is funny. You know, my, my younger daughter was saying, you know, isn't it funny that, uh, all the, you know, all these experts are saying, you know, limit your screen time with your kids and saying, mm -hmm. you know, an hour mo at most, and, and and then make them do things off their screens. But, but they're saying, you know, plop your kids in front of a screen for six or seven hours a day, uh, and, and and we'll call that we'll call that schooling. We call uh, it, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, let's just hope that uh, things do settle down here a bit, and uh, you know. I, I just could not, you know, when I started teaching, uh, our, our academic year in Japan starts in April, which is very strange. It's nothing like the rest of the world, but we started in April. So, for instance, I, when I was talking with Sarah Olive, they're kind of just starting with online learning because they, they went into summer break. Right. And we didn't. We taught all the way through and we started late. So we taught into August. Uh, and then started a next term almost immediately. And when I first started uh, the online, I, I said, okay, guys, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't get to meet you face to face now, but I'll get to do this in the fall. I said that with great confidence. So now I'm finished with my uh, prognostications and <laughs> looking into the future. But uh, at some point, things have to get better. I think in Shakespeare, it was a it was two year lockdown of the theaters in the 90s. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but, uh, and we look back and go, that's not two years. And that's locked down from a plague that, that killed you. That yeah. just, I mean, killed, they're just dead people in the streets, people just falling over dead in the streets and yeah. mass, uh, just horrible, the ho most horrible kind of things. So I guess we're left with the image of say Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I always thought the image of the monk carrying the letter, the lower friar actually carrying the letter to Romeo that never got to Romeo or else we would have had an ha a happy ending. Um, he's locked up in a plague house and it always seemed to be sort of a ridiculous contrived thing for me. And now it doesn't, Yeah, you know, we yeah, can see no, it. the plague was just before that play came out and the theaters were just opened. And that's bad enough. But the good thing was, is that the memory of the, the theaters did reopen, you know, life returned to normal, it, it did end. And so that's what we can, we can hope for. Okay, well, if I could ask you, uh, we're going to finish up right now. But if I could ask you, Eric, to stay for maybe one or two minutes after we finish recording, and I have one quick question for you, and then I'll let you get back with your life. And yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thank well, you so much for coming on. This was 
this was just wonderful. And it's just, a, it's good that we can do this as imperfect as things are, that at least we can do this. And yes, I'm very happy to do this. And thank you to anyone who is watching and listening to us. Um, I hope that uh, we uh, were, 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 were of interest. And um, I appreciate your attention. Um, 